So I have a couple of Miss Manners uh, letters to read to you today. All right. Um, you know, I, if you don't read the newspaper, it's okay. But Miss Manners, like it's kind of like Dear Abby, but Miss Manners columns about what's appropriate and etiquette and things like that. And some of you may grow up in homes where manners mattered. I did not. Um, so my wife has had 20 plus years of correcting me on those things. So, all right, here's one. Dear Miss Manners. People press for time in the morning, do all manner of things in their cars on their way to work. They eat breakfast, pluck their eyebrows, floss and apply makeup. While visible to their fellow commuters, they seem to think themselves in an isolation field. I, on the other hand, walk to work, and not unlike the commuters above, I like to make productive use of the 15 minutes by shaving with an electric razor as I go. This is not me. This is not me. It's somebody else. This is a real letter, all right? New York Post. Uh, My wife tells me that it's totally socially unacceptable. It seems oddly to be an issue one does not find addressed in etiquette references. So what's the buzz? Gentle reader, Miss Manners responds. Other than the one coming from your electric razor, Miss Manners feels sure that you intended to set her up for this punchline and is ashamed of herself for taking the bait. Although dangerous and somewhat unlawful and always unsavory, grooming in a moving vehicle is not necessarily a breach of etiquette. All right, so you put makeup on in the mornings in the car? There's an illusion of privacy when one is behind closed doors, even if there are glass windows that shatter it. After all, inadvisable as it may be, people do personal things in their homes behind open shades all the time. Walking down the street, however, is completely public, and shaving is therefore not permitted there. Further, having been in the path of many pedestrians distracted by a cellular device, Miss Manners shudders at the consequences of being in that of an oncoming shaver. All right, let me read another one. Dear Miss Manners, Please advise me on the proper way to eat spaghetti when a family of little kids and adults are informally around the table. Next, what's correct for a gathering of only adults? And finally, how should it be done when there is a major formal place setting for each guest? This is all about spaghetti, okay? Some of you may have been wondering this for years, all right? If they wish, this is still the question. If they wish, others may go ahead and sing, jam your right fork in, pull the oozy-gooey out, twirl it high in the air, and catch it in your mouth, or the meatball on the floor song, I only want to set a proper example. So Miss Manners responds, gentle reader, this is noble of you. Miss Manners pictures of your relatives pasta getting cold while they ponder what age qualifies as adulthood or what degree of formality requires which approach. You are in dire need of a unified spaghetti policy. (laughs) And please stop tempting chaos with jingles. The correct method does not involve a spoon. It It is necessary to state that because Americans of Italian descent often argue that it does. Bracing the tines of the fork against the spoon is considered rather crude in Italy. Rather, the fork should be planted, tines down, now picture this so you know how to do it, right, against the plate and rotated so the spaghetti is wound around it. Those pesky strands that refute a wide can be cut with the side of the fork. All right, and you can go online and you can see tons and tons of letters from Miss Manners. So if you're like me and you're in desperate need of from some... Uh, what do they call it when you have to take a class? Remedial. Remedial manners work. Go on to Miss Manners and you'll find all kinds of stuff. But I wrote a couple of Miss Manners of my own because I think one of the issues that sometimes we are questioning about or kind of wrestle with is what's appropriate ways to talk to God? What's appropriate, what, what's appropriate in church? Because there are certain kind of religious manners we've learned to adhere to that may or not be what God wants. So here's one, and this relates what we'll read later today. Dear Miss Manners, I'm a respected leader of an ancient religion, and I often am faced with issues pertaining to right and proper behavior 
especially in our gathering place, and specifically concerning right and proper ways to address our deity, who we call Yahweh. Recently, on a typical day on the job, a woman came in our building. She seemed quite disturbed. I wasn't sure whether to approach her or not with help, so I decided to wait and watch. What I saw, frankly, bothered me. I'm pretty sure she was drunk, because I saw her moving her lips, but no sound coming out of her mouth. Not unlike not unlike what you might see on Skid Row or in places where such disturbed and addicted people gather. Because of this obvious breach of religious etiquette, I felt that my firm responsibility was to approach her and scold her for this highly inappropriate display of -of out-of-control behavior toward God. Gentle reader. I concur that such public drunkenness lacks the respect due to your own religious tradition, and I concur with your conclusion that verbally correcting her unsavory behavior is the right and proper way to guard the honor of your sacred institution. My only hope, dear reader, is that you approached her discreetly and quietly so as not to cause distraction to other worshipers and not an unnecessarily embarrassed one. All right, that was one letter. Here's another one, and then we'll read the text. Dear Miss Landers, I am a greatly disturbed woman. I'm greatly distressed and I'm heavy-hearted, but not quite sure of my next step. I don't like my current reality. You hear what I'm saying? I'm guessing some of you can relate to that statement right there. I don't like my current reality. I'm happily married to a godly man who is kind in every way to me, but I want a baby. For whatever reason, I can't get pregnant. I don't know why. Maybe I never will get pregnant. Maybe God is mad at me. I know it's not my husband's fault because he has fathered children through another woman. So every month, every year, I feel deep depression and am emotionally exhausted. And to be honest, and to a great degree, I'm frustrated at God. I want to plead with him, cry out to him, pour out my heart to him. But my sense is that would be a bit too emotional for those around me, let alone, I'm not sure if God even hears our prayers, when we are not composed, proper, and self-controlled. Your thoughts, Miss Manners. So what we're going to look at today is somebody who had a need before God, and they talked to God in a way that was quite heartfelt, in a way that maybe some of us feel like, or sometimes our initial reaction would be, it's a little bit much. But let's just go right into the text. Where we're going to look today is in 1 Samuel. Let me tell you what we've done the last few weeks. The last few weeks, I've done just a handful of sermons that I would say, hopefully describe the DNA of not just Exodus Church, but the DNA of what we understand the Bible to say about how we relate to God, how we pursue God, how God pursues us, how God leads us. And it's not all clean, right angles, and proper stuff. There's all kinds of rawness to how people relate to God in the Bible, and I think there's all kinds of rawness to how God wants us to relate to Him. So in the book of 1 Samuel, obviously the book of 1 Samuel is about a man named Samuel. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, these events take place about 1,000 B.C., so about 3,000 years ago in the ancient land of Israel, modern-day Israel as well. But, and uh, Samuel uh, is not yet born, but the book becomes about Samuel. Samuel becomes this incredible prophet of God's people. So the book opens up, and we'll read a text here in a second, but the book opens up talking about uh, Hannah, who's a woman who's married to a man named Elkanah. And in those days, men often had more than one wife. There were other, all kinds of reasons for that, but he had, he had two wives. Hannah was one of them. The other ones, uh, the other, his other wife had children. Hannah did not have children. And in those days, in the ancient culture, a barren woman 
automatically got social scorned because that was the work of a woman in a lot of ways. So already she feels less than. All right. To top it off, the other wife would mock her and kind of make her feel. And then the husband, Elkanah, would say to Hannah, but Hannah, you have me. What else do you need? Which is a little bit insensitive as a male. Let's be honest with that. He says to her, don't, don't you have everything you want? I love you. Don't you have enough? And she's like, no, but I want a baby. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But let's pick up the text at this point. So go to the next slide here. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. All right. So once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, and in this case, Shiloh was like the holy place. They would go there once a year for a sacrifice of religious practice. Right? That's why they were going there. It was like a celebration, a festival. Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli, the priest, was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. All right, so far, so normal. Next one. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And the, the word bitterly really means the same thing as bitterness. They, you know, often the ancient cultures would use the sense of taste to describe the sense of their heart and their soul. You know, they are bitter in spirit. And again, you, I think you, if you're human, We've all felt that when something hasn't gone right, when we're, when we're heavy laden, distressed, anxious, whatever, there's a bitterness of spirit, unsettledness, kind of a bad taste of what's going on in my reality. So she's in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. I mean, she's deeply emotional here because things are not what she wants in her life. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for the entire lifetime, his entire lifetime. As a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. That was one of the symbols in those, a certain kind of a vow that if you were given the Lord, some people would not cut their, some young boys would not cut their hair. It was a certain religious vow. As she was praying to the Lord, this is the next slide, Eli watched her. So Eli is the priest kind of watching this woman. Seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? He demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger. But I am very discouraged. All right, so here's some of the words already used. Anguish, bitter, discouraged. Anger, bitter, discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. So some of these words are stacking up now. Sorrow, anguish, discouraged, bitter. And we're not just talking. Let me just back up for a second here. Christianity is not a religion simply for people who are anguished, discouraged, bitter people. Well, life happens to us, and those things happen to all of us. There's things happen to all of us where we're just like, we can't figure out why this isn't happening the way we want it to happen. And you might be discouraged about it, bitter about it, in anguish about it. But something that's unsettling, and we all know that feeling. And then we try to figure out, what are we supposed to do about that with God? In that case, this is the next slide, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant that request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, sir she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. And when Elkanah slept with Hannah, 
The Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. Now, just leave it here for a second on this slide. Earlier in the passage, and I didn't highlight the time, it actually says the Lord kept Hannah from having a baby. So if you're like me, you start wrestling with, wait a minute, God, why? She wanted a baby. Why did you keep her from having a baby? She, you know, you want, you want a healthier financial life in your family. You want a boyfriend or girlfriend. You want a husband or wife. You want a son or a daughter. You want a wayward son or daughter to come back to God. Whatever thing you want. Are there times where God keeps that from happening? What's up with that? Why would God do that? It's not true in all your situations. We can't assume that God's holding back everything. But we also know that God is ultimately loving, and he always does what will be best for us, not like a taskmaster, but as a loving, loving father. But he's holding back, it says. So Hannah is resolved, she's determined, she's distressed, she's desperate. She's all of those things that sometimes we think are negative qualities, distressed, in anguish, determined. I mean, she's all these things, and she doesn't know what to do with it because she wants a baby, and she doesn't have one. And so she says what she says in the passage. She says, I'm pouring out my heart to God. Now, let me, let's talk about this for a second. This is what, it just came to my mind, actually, when we were singing the song. So on one hand, we're supposed to let go. So should we just tell Hannah, oh, Hannah, just let go. Just sing the song, let go my soul and trust and Just let sing it and walk away, Hannah. It'll be all better now. Or do we pour out our heart to God in deep anguish and distress? Or do we do both? Like, how do I let go but also pour out my heart to God? What does that mean? How do we pray that way? You know, I, I, uh, I have a friend who has some physical slash emotional issues right now. Known this person for years. I was visiting them once in the hospital and they were having some of the physical dealt with. But there was also some great anxiety and emotional stuff going on too. So this friend of mine said, sitting in the hospital room with him, and this friend of mine says, well, let's pray. And I know from talking to this friend of mine, and none of you know him here, I know from talking to this friend of mine, deeply in anguish about some stuff going on in his life. So he says, let's pray. And here's how he prays. Oh, Lord, we're just grateful for you today, and we really want you to know how grateful we are. Would you bless the surgeon today as he does his work? And would you give us all peace? And would you pray for all the missionaries around the world? Amen. I almost wanted to choke him in bed. That wouldn't have been a bad idea. Because I was like, what was that? You were praying what you thought was right and appropriate that God wanted to hear. There wasn't an ounce of your heart in that prayer. I know what you're wanting. and I know you want God to deliver you from some things. I know you're in anxiety about some things. I know you're in anguish about some things. But you kind of changed, he even kind of changed his tone of voice. He kind of had the God voice. You guys, you know what I'm talking about. Had the God voice and kind of broken a little bit of King James English. 
as if somehow that's how God wants to hear us. And he made sure, and I love this person, but he made sure God knows that he's grateful. Because he was concerned that if God doesn't think he's grateful, God may not heal him. So he made sure he kind of checked off all the boxes that he knew he was supposed to. I should pray for P. I should pray for you. I should pray for missionaries. I need to make sure God knows I'm grateful for everything I have in life. Bless me, amen. And I'm, maybe there's times where we just can pray, God, I'm really kind of frustrated, God, with what's going on. Will you relent with what's going on in my life? Will you do something? Now, maybe you shouldn't be yelling that in your house or your dorm room or your office complex. But you know that spirit. You know that spirit where you really want to see something happen. There's, like I said, a wayward son or daughter. Maybe you've longed for a while to get married and it doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe you've wanted to have a child, but it's not happening. Maybe you've wanted this job you've always wanted, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And frankly, you're a little bit ticked off at God, and I think God can handle that. You know the story of Job. If you don't know the story, Job was a really righteous man, a godly man. Had money, and he he was a great man. And then God allows Satan to take it all away from him. It's kind of a test, and in a way, you kind of think initially, is this kind of a sick test, God? But it wasn't a sick test. It was a way that God was doing some great things in Job's life. But in the book, I love one of these parts of the book with Job because Job starts having this raw conversation with God. God, what is going on here? I didn't deserve this. What, and then sometimes we go, we all go to this, what did I do wrong? I must have done something that God's making this happen to me. I must have done something wrong. I must have sinned. It's a good place to explore, but if there's nothing there, then maybe God's just there's something else going on. And Job has this kind of, I call it a boxing match with God. He's like, God, and he actually says in one part of the book of Job, God, I want you to come down here, and I want to go at it with you. I'm paraphrasing. This is essentially the tone of Job. And, and then God says to Job, okay, and this is literally the paraphrase of the, of the Hebrew language. Okay. Let's go a few rounds. I mean, in the, in the Hebrew, it says, gird up your loins like a man. But in those days, if you gird up your loins, you were pulling your robe up to fight somebody, tucking in so you could fight. So God's challenging Job to a fight. Guess who wins? But he's not, he is, God is not upset by Job's blatant honesty to him. He's not, to, oh, Job, I can't believe you're, because Job was pouring out his heart to God. At the end of the book, as a matter of fact, God tells everybody involved in the story, Job's the only one that got it right here. Everybody else is trying to tell Job, well, you must be doing something wrong. That's why it hasn't happened. And God's like, no, Job's the only one who got it right. And you get the sense that he got it right because he was raw, honest with me. Not in a spirit of complaint, not in a spirit of, I'm going to give a middle finger to you, God, and say I'm upset with you. Because Job's wife was telling him to do that. But in a spirit of, I, I, I know you and I trust you, but I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I'm in deep anguish. Why can't this happen? There was a, years ago I was talking with a college student in my office. This was 10 years ago. And she came in with a broken wrist, or a cast on her wrist. And I just to make, I didn't know her. She just wanted to get together. And so I, I said, what happened? She goes, well, I broke it. Oh, how'd you break it? I slammed it against the wall. 
Why'd you slam it against the wall? Well, it was outside your church building as I was leaving church last Sunday. Okay, tell me more of the story because you slammed your hand on the wall as you were leaving the church. Yeah, after, after about 10, 15 minutes into the service, I got so angry at God that I slammed my hand on the wall on the way out and broke my wrist. And then she proceeded to tell me she'd had a growing up years of sexual abuse at the hands of some relatives. And she was mad at God because how could God allow that to happen? And it's kind of like what I would say to Hannah or this young lady or anybody else that has some issue they're trying to figure out with God. You can give a real sweet sounding answer and say, well, just trust God and all things work together. But honestly, in some sense, the misuse of that passage doesn't help. What I said to her and what I've said to myself many times and what I would say to Hannah and say to you because I think this is what God would say is, okay, well, get in the ring and go a few rounds with God. God's not going to be offended by you talking to him in that deeply intense kind of way. As a matter of fact, he wants you to bring the real you to him. Don't bring somebody you're not to God. Don't bring King James English to God. Don't bring the these and thous and all the proper things because you think if you do it right, God might hear you. Bring your heart to God. So if you're frustrated, I mean, if, if you're frustrated with something happening and you just say, God, why, why can't you relent? Why don't you stop? It's okay. God's not going to he's not going to he's not going to strike you with lightning as long as you're still face to face with him. What what seems to be the story of scripture is when pe God, when people turn away from God and walk away, because then, then they're then they're saying, I'm done with God. I'm done. Hannah wasn't done with God. Job wasn't done with God. Men and women throughout the Bible and throughout history who followed Jesus have had intense struggle and frustrated frustration and unmet dreams and desires. There are many that did not walk away from God, but they poured out their heart to him. Because that's the kind of God we have. He wants us to pour out our heart to him. Not like some kind of demanding kind of, God, you have to give me this today. Not demanding. God's not this Santa Claus that we need to make demands of. But he's a loving father that wants us to pour our hearts out to him. I mean, there's, there's times, I have four kids, in various environments, one of them will start saying something. Well, and then they'll stop and I'll say, well, well I, I know you won't let me do that, Dad. And, I, and I've, I've learned to get to the point where I say, well, just tell me anyway, because I want to know what you want. Well, but you won't let me do it anyway. Now, sometimes it's manipulation on their part. They're trying to soften me up and go in for the kill, you know what I mean? But there's times where I've, if I'm the loving dad that I want to be, what I really say, just tell me what you want. And sometimes they'll say, I said, tell me, well, I know what you want, Dad. No, I, I wanna, I'm asking you what you want. And they'll tell me. And sometimes yeah, that can work. Other times I know or my wife and I will know that's probably not wise for them, but we want them to express their desires and wants. So God is a, not a father who's like, don't talk about it. He wants to hear our desires and wants. And in his loving wisdom, he knows what will be best for your life, freedom, wholeness, joy, and peace. And there may be times we might say, yeah, we can do that. That's exactly why I want to give you what your hearts desire. Other times God does say no, not out of no, no, no. I'm not going to hear that. But out of a greater love and a greater wisdom. But he still wants, like, I want my kids to be honest with me about their desires. I want them to be. And those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. You want your kids to be open and honest. 
And so that's what God wants. He doesn't want you to say what you think he wants to hear. So here's the, here's the challenge for today. Next slide here. Pour out your heart to Jesus. That doesn't mean you have to you know, go somewhere like Hannah and move your lips and not make any sounds come in your mouth so people can wonder what's going on. But you know the very thing that you would love to put in God's inbox. You know what you're hungry. And sometimes we don't even want to pray because we're afraid we're going to get a no again. But keep bringing your heart to God in your prayer. There's a passage in, go to the next passage, a passage in Romans 8. And I love this passage because it talks about the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us. And it says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. Because sometimes you don't even know what the, what's stirring in your heart. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Kind of like Hannah. She was moving her lips and nothing was coming out. Maybe she was saying words. Maybe she was just trying to verbalize something in her soul she didn't know how to verbalize. There's an unsettledness about your soul or something that you know. You know the Bible says the Holy Spirit prays for us. Because sometimes we can't even put words to what our hunger is and our desire is. But we have a loving Father who wants to know those things and will always, always, always lead us down the path of peace, joy, and holiness. So one of the things, if I could say anything of a DNA of Exodus, which I think is a DNA of the Bible, is God wants you to be raw with him. No etiquette, no mismanners, no King James English, no religious-sounding voices, none of that. I mean, if that's hard for you, if you think about sometimes I, I learned early on in life, I, I, I don't journal a lot now, but I used to journal a lot of my prayers. And I, and I realized I need to start, I journal in a way that was really like I was writing a letter to a friend. I didn't say, oh, thou highest deity of all deities. Da, da, da. I just said, God, I'm really frustrated right now. I don't know what you're doing. Because you can be honest on paper in ways you can't be honest in front of people. So maybe you do that. But whatever it is, learn to be honest and raw with God. Because that's what it, when God's, when, when talking about pour out your heart to him. And we read that in the opening psalm. Pour out your heart to him. For God is our refuge. We talk a lot about asking God to pour out his spirit on us. So how do we become the kind of people that pour out our heart to him? Not like pitiful, whining, complaining people that nobody wants to be around but as strong, confident, trusting of what the goodness of God, but also honest and raw and human. You can be both. That's how God made us. So take, take a cue from the life of Hannah, who year after year, month after month, and sometimes just day after day, probably was heavy-hearted with an issue in her life, but she was not going to stop pouring out her heart to God. Don't stop hoping for what God can do. Don't, start at, don't stop asking for what your heart desires. Your desires aren't bad if they come from the heart that God gave you. Don't stop asking for those things. God wants that kind of honesty. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit prays for us in, in a whole new realm of how God works in our lives with those kind of things. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, I know 
I know the issues in my own heart in which I want to move my lips but not say words because I don't know exactly how to ask for or even articulate the unsettled stirrings of my heart and the unmet hungers of my heart. So in the same way, I, I'm sure of the rest of these people out here who are also your sons and your daughters. I'm sure there's many unmet hopes, unfulfilled hunger, and dried up thirst. I know there's frustrations about money or relationships or future or past. I know there's frustrations about moms and dads or sons and daughters. I know there's anguish about any variety of things. And sometimes the anguish is a small letter A and 10 point font. And sometimes the anguish is a capital A and 32 point font. It's a loud anguish. And we all have different stories. But God, we love the fact that you hear us when we pour out our heart to you. So I pray for every child of yours here this morning that we would trust that you're a good and loving father who wants to hear the deepest pourings out of our hearts. And we're grateful uh, that you do that for us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we finish uh, every Sunday at Exodus with communion. And we do that primarily because...